Welcome to The Great Conversation, where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas can change the world. One of the... Um, one of our uh, former podcast visitors, uh, Fred Burton, uh, wanted to reach back and give back to the industry. And he actually created a series of awards to, with a number of different categories um, that really honored those people who are at the very beginning of protective intelligence, you know, counter surveillance. These are the people still working off sticky notes and who had, who had to basically start driving a, uh, a car down the road with one or two wheels. And they were the ones that were pivotal in creating a, a sense of process, if you will, out of protective intelligence. And I got to meet one of these founders um, at the uh, Protective Intelligence Summit sponsored by Ontic in Austin about a month or so ago. And he just did a fabulous job facilitating a panel on insider risk. And I promised him then we're going to get on, we're going to get into the great conversation. Let's, let's, let's compare notes and see what we learned. And he, he loved the idea and he's on today, Scott Stewart, the VP of intelligence at Torchstone Global. Scott, thank you for joining me. Absolutely, Ron. Thanks for having me. And it really is an honor to be here with you uh, having this conversation. Well, as everyone knows who listens to this, we're sitting by a fireplace with a glass of something, something, and that could be anything with two Adirondack chairs. And uh, we're just going to have a, a great conversation and compare some notes. But first, you know, people are going to, I'm going to put a link to your background so I don't have to spend 15 minutes, which is minimum I have to spend on your background. But suffice it to say, you um, were not only there at the beginning, but uh, media outlets and others still turn to you today to kind of try to figure out what's going on in the world around terrorism and all the other bad things happening in the world. What, um, before we go anywhere, what fuels you, Scott? What keeps you going? I think what keeps me going is the fact that I, 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 mean, I really was created to be a sheepdog. Um, it, it's funny because at one point in my life, I, I thought I wanted to be a CIA case officer. Uh, but then I realized that they were wolves, you know, and they, they really prey on people and, and people's weaknesses. And I found I just kind of lucked into the whole diplomatic security service thing. Um, but as it was, that was the perfect place for someone with my disposition, uh, you know, someone that really wants to be that sheepdog and, and to protect people. And really, for the last 35 years of my life, I, I've dedicated my life to protecting people from those threats. And whether that be criminals, terrorists, uh, the espionage threat, uh, even, you know, cyber threats now, uh, I've really am motivated just to, to keep people from being victimized because it just breaks my heart. Uh, you know, to see people, especially when it's something that could be prevented and it's needless if they just had a little bit of education. Uh, so I've really spent a lot of time and effort trying to educate people uh, to understand how these bad actors work so that they can keep from being victimized. And, and after, you know, 35 years in this business is what's your lessons learned about how they, why they do and how they do it? 
Why do they do it? How do they do it? What uh, obviously a variety of ver- a variety of reasons for that, but have you come up with kind of a scorecard of the why behind this? Well, yeah, it, it's all going to depend on on what we're talking about. You know, whether it is something that's you know financially motivated, grievance motivated, or just pure evil. Uh, but but certainly there are those motives out there. I, I think that the how. Um, you know, that, that's one of the things that we really focus on in protective intelligence, right, is that, that focus on the how. It's not enough just to understand that something happened, but how did that bad actor, you know, pull that off? So we, we really look at deconstructing things like the terrorist attack cycle, really looking at how a, a criminal plans and executes an attack. You know, was he an ambush type predator? Was he a stalking type criminal? Um, and, and we also really do the same thing on the cyber side, right? We're, we're looking at, at those kind of kill chains and how hacks work. Um, but I, I think that it's, for the most part, uh, it, you know, a lot of these, these actors really aren't, you know, that sophisticated, uh, but they're allowed to operate because people aren't paying attention and there isn't a lot of awareness. Um, so really a lot of what I, I try to do is to raise people's awareness of these threats and, and you know, of the, the signs that they can see that there is something, uh, you know, that, that could happen to them. You know, it, so funny, I, I'm going to draw a really bad analogy, but I think you'll, you'll pick it up. Um, I learned very early on the difference between being consciously good at something and unconsciously good at something. And I learned that by realizing when I went to teach that I had been doing my, the, the skills that people had said I was good at, I had been doing unconsciously. But once I taught someone about it, I became conscious of the, um, the uh, tools I brought to the background, the, the kind of insights I brought to the uh, situation and I became a conscious competent. So I would imagine when we talk about bad actors, there's a sophisticated conscious competent on all sides of the equation. And then there's the unconscious uh, competent as well. Uh, am I making sense? Is that a reach? No, no, I, I, I think that that's definitely uh, very possible um, you know, and, and very applicable. Uh, you know, to the criminality. I, I think, though, in many cases, uh, you know, they, they really aren't that competent, uh, which is pretty amazing. Uh, but unfortunately, they're able to operate just because of people's um, just ignorance of, of who they are and what they're doing. I see. I see. So let's get to the three-day summit that we're involved in. Um, what did you learn? Wow. Um, it, 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 I'll tell you what, it was a great summit. Um, and one of the things that, that was, well, one of the first things I learned is that by the way it was structured, I couldn't get to every seminar I wanted to get to on, on the breakouts. You know, usually when I go to uh, an event, it's kind of like I'm there for the networking. And, and you know, sometimes there, there may be a couple good presentations. There may be some, some, you know, kind of smart people that I want to learn from. Um, but, but this was one of these events where I really wish I could have gone to every single uh, one of the breakout events because there was just so much good material, so many good ideas there. And I, unfortunately, you know, you just couldn't catch them all. Um, but certainly I, I enjoyed, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the main speakers, uh, you know, you and I had talked about uh, Manish earlier 
and kind of his analogy of uh, you know the, the highway system uh, to the intelligence system, and, and you know, and you know, kind of building that out. I, I thought that was you know very interesting. Um, I, I really uh, also enjoyed some of the discussion of you know open source uh, investigations, in, you know, in, in protective intelligence, how to how to do a better job there. Um, I thought that there were also a very good presentation uh, on, you know, talking about uh, some of the surveys that Ontic had done, uh, you know, f- of various people within the community talking about the things that they're observing. Uh, so there was just so much to absorb. And of course, the, the Jack Carr thing I thought was fascinating as well. Yeah. Why, why was Jack Carr fascinating to you? Uh, I, I mean, I guess I, I enjoyed... Uh, kind of hearing his view, not only on being an author, but also just understanding how he puts, uh, you know, his craft together, how, you know, how he kind of, uh, you know, because it's, it's something I, you know, I write, everything is nonfiction, um, you know, but, but seeing a, a, a very successful fiction writer there and just understanding how he goes about his craft um, and how he puts together, you uh, you know, the, the characters, the plots, et cetera. I just thought it was a, you know, really super interesting discussion. So you, you'll, you'll hear what a nerd I am. Um, I'm going to be having Jack Carr on the great conversation. And so just like with mm-hmm. you, where I stopped your background and listened to you and enjoyed some of your writings. Um, I read four of his books, you know, one after the other, the, the Reese series, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm, and, and because of the way I'm wired, I start collecting data on the profile of Jack Reese. What's this man thinking? You know, and, and he's part philosopher. He's part tactician. He's uh, heavily disciplined and trained. Uh, and, and what I can't wait in talking to um, Jack is to to really get into that persona, that archetype, if you will, because he's hinged a whole series on that archetype. And that archetype isn't, isn't fiction. That archetype is made up of real people. And I can't wait to dig into that. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a very, very good point. Yes, it was a, a, a really, I mean, there again, you had the, the premise of, of, of the book and, and kind of, or the series, uh, but but certainly you could you could see the the gears turning there uh, almost in Jack's head as he was working. Absolutely. Well, let's go to a, a couple of things that you you know I've I've written down five things you said that w- struck you about the summit. Uh, but the uh, let's go to two of them. One is the survey. Um, what hit me like a ton of bricks is we've got a real problem. But right right behind that came and we're finally conscious of it. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it's almost like the security industry is waking up. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you're right there. When we saw that these top executives understand that the threats are out there, it's, it's like a hallelujah moment. Uh, because for, for so long, uh, you know, we really, there has been kind of an ignorance there. And it's been an uphill battle, uh, you know, for many uh, CSOs and, and other security practitioners to really get the attention and the resources that they need to protect their enterprises and organizations, you know, against these threats, um, and it, it was just 
to, to me, you know, that, that, that's where it all has to start. Um, you know, otherwise, you're just pushing that boulder up the hill. But once you get the buy-in at that C-suite level, uh, it just makes things so much easier. So, so definitely having, having that awareness uh, goes a long way towards being able to put in place the types of programs that you need to really either you know, avoid or mitigate the threats that are out there. Well, and, and also now remember, we had a number of different professions at the summit. We didn't just have CSOs. We, we had uh, consultants, uh, 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 internal and external risk consultants. Um, we had CLOs there, uh, chief legal officers. Um, we had all these different uh, actors, if you will, inside our ecosystem. And, and when we listened to Manish, we start seeing that if you think about it, each one of the executive team is a data warehouse of information. Yes. Right? And then of course, you and I both know there's also warehouses outside the company, the four walls of the company as well. So those are other warehouses, if you will. So there today, I mean, 35 years later after you and Fred and others were doing this, we're still trying to connect those warehouses to get the whole picture. Did that strike you from the summit as well? Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. But but there again, I mean the the progress that we've made, you know, just during my time is is, is incredible. You know, I think back to to my years uh, after I got out of the government and when I was working at Dell. Um, you know, I was maintaining my POI lists in just this janky really primitive SQL database that I had set up uh, because we wanted to, you know, so that it was something that, that the whole team could access, right? Um, and now you see something like an Ontic that's out there where they actually have a mobile app and every member of the team can have that in their pocket while they're on post or in the car or, or travel in a hotel. You know, they have access to, to that data stream. Um, and, and, you know, the, the progress that we've made uh, is, is really fantastic. Uh, and and I, I was encouraged by kind of Manisha's vision of, of how much farther it can go, you know, how much better it can get. Uh, so I, I think that that was really encouraging of, of trying to even, uh, you know, increase the reach, uh, you know, of those connections. And, and, and also just the way that that then uh, can help us as practitioners to be even more effective in connecting those dots. I'm glad you said that because a number of people after the summit you know, had a little of a, a aha moment, which is natural. You've been 35 years in this business. So you've seen this behavior uh, across many different uh, uh, situations. But when change occurs, and it looks like it's disrupting what you do today, one of two reactions, one, one is to embrace the change and leverage it and grow from it. And the other is, oh my gosh, I got to protect it, hold on to it. I don't want to change, right? And uh, you saw that at this summit, a lot of people reacting that way, in, but, but mostly in a positive way. Uh, but where I was going is if Manisha's roadmap is right, and we're going to have an integrated, interconnected, real-time way to access the pieces of the pie and bring them all together so we can see the whole picture that that takes that SQL database to another level, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, the other part about it is that that as you were talking about that external collaboration, um, and that's also a, a I think a positive thing that we see happening 
uh, you know, through an organization like OnTech or even some of these uh, external organizations that have popped up, like, you know, the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, ATAP, uh, you know, the analyst roundtables, et cetera, just allowing people within the community to connect and, and share information and understand that, you know, if, if we may be at company A and company B and perhaps they're rivals, um, but we may have the same problems. We may have some of the same POIs focused on our, our executives, threatening our executives. And, you know, by sharing information, we can really, you know, benefit everyone. Well, I think we all recognize, and I think CEOs are beginning to grasp this too, that the threat landscape does not support a singular entity or a singular soldier. This is kind of a team sport across the globe. George Schultz saw that and that's how OSAC was formed, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's another really great outlet. And, and it's, you know, seeing kind of those common cause uh, groups that are there, whether it's, you know, the hotel group, uh, the, the faith-based group, uh, you know, it's been really nice that the education group, seeing those security directors, you know, coming together and, and sharing that information that, that previously was just kind of siloed. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, uh, we, we know now we have entities like the um, Security Community Network, I believe it's called, mm-hmm. that does a fantastic job acting as a source of risk information to nonprofits uh, around the world. And, uh, and if they have tools like this in their hand in the future, and they can source intel from a variety of sources and create contextualized integrated whole pictures for their clients, that's going to, that's going to help us all. Yeah. And, and hopefully save lives, obviously. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line there, but we're, we're seeing it happen. And when we're seeing it, you know, step-by-step, step, you know, coming together uh, as a community. Uh, and and that, that's just, that, that's, I guess, one of the biggest takeaways also, uh, you know, when we talk about the, the Ontic Summit, you know, seeing people from these different organizations, uh, you know, SCN, for example, and ADL sitting on a panel together. Right. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's great. You know, they're, they're there to help everyone and not, you know, really viewing each other as competitors. Absolutely. And it, it, the same thing with the independent consultants and the formal consulting organizations, all in the, all there, all sharing, all trying to get better at, at saving lives and ultimately arming their organizations with competitive advantage because of that. Yes. And, and, and that's where I, I, I'd like to in this conversation with that for a second, do you get in conversations with CEOs around how the right kind of intelligence not only would protect people and assets, but possibly fuel innovation around um, competitive um, markets around the world? Oh, absolutely. Because see, one of the things that, 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 that happens um, is if you view security as not an obstacle, but an enabler. Uh, and, and unfortunately, uh, you know, there are a lot of people in the security world uh, that, you know, that I've been part of for all these years that do tend to be Dr. No, right? And they're seen as, you know, no, we can't do that. It's too dangerous. But, but really, if, if you have the, the right mindset about risk and about security, uh, security then becomes an enabler for the company to allow them to be able to operate 
in places where perhaps some of their competitors are reluctant to, uh, whether that's uh, you know bidding on a block uh, of you know oil, an oil field in, in Mexico, or or doing business you know in, in you know some part of Africa or something. Actually, you know having a, a a robust security and protective intelligence practice can help you understand you know what the threat is and how you can protect yourself against that threat. And of course, obviously, you have to figure that into into your business model. Um, but still, many times, you know, you can do that and, and account for that cost that the extra guards and gates are going to cost and still, you know, make a nice profit that perhaps your competitors aren't going to because they don't have, you know, that same level of uh, security and protective intelligence. I love that. If you're doing the right thing with your people and your company, you're not only going to help them with their livelihoods and their lives but also make the company more competitive. And we see it right now, right? We've got global conditions right now around the Ukraine episode and, uh, and the Chinese and Taiwan that are threatening our supply chains and goods that we've, we've learned over time, unfortunately, like we've been boiled like a frog mm. uh, to be comfortable with those supply chains. And we're suddenly realizing they're more fragile than we thought. And if we had a Scott Stewart at the table with the kind of data Manish could bring together with his platform, we could possibly have provided contingencies uh, for that very behavior. No, exactly. And, and then beyond just you know entering where I was kind of talking about entering into business, but also having a great security and intelligence team can also allow you to be more resilient in the face of threats. Yes. So perhaps while some people are pulling out of, you know, parts of Ukraine or Poland or elsewhere, your company may feel secure staying there because of the team you have, because of the plan and because of your understanding of the threat and, and measures that you can take to mitigate or avoid those, those threats. Well, I, uh, Scott, again, 35 years of analytical, investigative and security experience. Uh, give us a quick glimpse at the future from Scott Stewart's eyes. Wow. Um, <laughs> the future. Uh, that's a big topic. But I think, I think in this realm, I, I really do believe that, uh, you know, as, as you indicated from, from that Ontic report, I really do believe that we're going to see organizations and not just companies, but I mean, NGOs and other organizations uh, really uh, becoming to understand that, that security departments are not just a cost center, but they are really, uh, you know, a business center that can help drive revenue, that can help drive that that resilience uh, in the face of adversity. And I think that too, uh, they've seen how security departments are able to step up and help them during things like COVID. Uh, in many cases, you know, there weren't contingency plans in place, uh, but a lot of organizations relied on those security professionals. To, to come in and help them during the contingency. So that really got a lot of goodwill. So I think that really things are trending up, uh, you know, kind of for this profession. And certainly when it comes to uh, intelligence, intelligence sharing and, and understanding risks and threats, I really believe that, uh, you know, we are becoming much more capable and, and we're going to be much more valuable, uh, you know, to our, our clients and to our partners going forward. Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle, a database company, once said, yeah, I think he said this in the 80s, Scott, once said, um, those who 
have the information, have the power, and the ability to change the world. And uh, Scott, I couldn't be happier for you and your industry and your profession that you're on the cusp of fulfilling that promise for risk, resilience, and security. Thank you for a great conversation. Thanks for having me, Ron.